Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Today on Darwin or Design, an encore presentation of an episode originally airing September 30th, 2006, featuring Michael Behe and Jonathan Wells. My name is Tom Woodward, and I'm your host. I am enjoying coming alongside every Saturday at 5 o'clock, often here with Keith Allen. Keith, thanks for all your help. Thank you. And we're here on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, WTBN, AM 570 and 910. Darwin or Design is brought to you each week by Trinity College of Florida in Trinity, Florida. And we are uh, delighted that they could support this program. I've been a professor there for 18 years, teaching in the history of science, as well as philosophy, communication, and even systematic theology. So it's been a joy to to be a part of that uh, great institution, teaching there for the last uh, two decades almost. We have in the studio with us today two very, very exciting scientists. They're both basically, uh, if I remember correctly, biochemists. Jonathan Wells uh, is a graduate of Yale University uh, with a Ph.D. in Religious Studies and also a graduate from the University of California at Berkeley in uh, the area of embryology. Am I correct, Jonathan? That's correct, Tom. Okay. And Jonathan has been the uh, very, very well-noted author of Icons of Evolution, why the evidence that you find in the textbooks is maybe not all it's cracked up to be and for in terms of this uh, Darwinian creation story. So, uh, Jonathan Wells, thanks for coming to Tampa Bay, and thanks for coming to our program. I'm delighted to be here, Tom. Thank you. And uh, seated right next to Jonathan down at the end of this desk is Michael Behe, author of Darwin's Black Box, a book which has been out for 10 years, and I believe it's just out in a 10th anniversary edition. Am I right, uh, Mike? Yeah, that's right. Just out this summer. Very good. Well, Michael Behe, a professor for several, I guess about uh, 18 or 20 years or more. 21 years. 21 years at Lehigh University, uh, trained in biochemistry, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a PhD in biochemistry, had a hand in discovering something called, or at least analyzing something called ZDNA. That's right. That's uh, (laughs) a little while ago. I don't know if I understand (laughs) what ZDNA is, and I don't know if we're going to go there, but we want It's a secret. It's a secret. Okay, (laughs) Okay. we won't pry too much. But then Anyway, the, uh, these two fine scientists and also Ralph Silke, who uh, is here this weekend, professor of biology. He could not join us in the studio, but he is also a part of the program of Darwin or Design, Resolving the Conflict, a Friday night and Saturday morning a series of presentations at the Sundome and at the local Radisson uh, in North St. Pete. But if you didn't get there... You know, of course, this is uh, airing Saturday afternoon at five o'clock. And if you didn't get to the meetings, don't you, worry, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, hold on, hold your horses. You can still, as it were, go to a key website and just, as it were, leave a message and go to PSSI a website. It's called DoctorsDoubtingDarwin.org. Darwin is spelled out, doubting is spelled out, and doctors is all spelled out. But let me say that again, doctorsdoubtingdarwin.org. And there's a place on that website where you can leave a message and just say, send me information 
on the video the dvd set it's excellent resource excellent resource it was uh filmed in high quality wonderful high quality video with audio and all the the bells and whistles you'll feel like you were there you you will you'll actually be better than being there no no i'm not quite but if if you missed it with all the things going on there's a lot of things and uh, that were happening over the weekend so so that's that's an organization which actually sponsored this uh, program Uh, and of course i am working uh on based on the trinity campus with an organization called the c.s lewis society which holds uh, seminars, debates, conferences, all kinds of interesting uh, ed- educational presentations, usually on university or college campuses. So let's, uh, Keith, are we ready to dive into the to the? I think so. Stuff? We've been waiting for this. We've this been is, waiting for this. This is a big show. <laughs> this is it. We are entering a very interesting time in the history of science. And I was wondering, uh, Jonathan Wells, since you have been dealing with this area of Darwinism, the theory that has dominated science and education and literally dominated the, the world of thinking people all around this planet. Uh, what is what have we seen happen? Just give us a sketch of what has happened in the last maybe two or three or four decades that has caused Darwinian theory to come under severe, as it were, uh, doubt or criticism from even scientists. Can you just give us a couple of main points why Darwinian theory is tottering? Well, briefly, uh, science is doing its job. It's discovering more and more about the world we live in, especially about living things. And the more we learn about living things, the less plausible Darwin's 150-year-old theory looks. Uh, One example of this is actually Mike Behe's work. Uh, His book titled Darwin's Black Box refers to the cell. A black box to a scientist is some uh, mysterious thing that does something we don't know how. And that's what the cell was for Darwin. Well, now we know a lot more about cells than Darwin did. And the more we learn, uh, the less uh, plausible his theory looks. So Darwin didn't know about DNA. He didn't know about molecular systems in the cell. But we we have stumbled onto this new information. Yes, the cell is actually an extremely uh, complicated factory uh, with multiple machines and codes and uh, computer-like language and uh, very intricate and, and highly organized uh, system. It's not just the blob of jelly that Darwin thought it was. But the typical biology teacher would come back and say, well, but Dr. Wells, don't we know that um, you know things change in nature? I mean, there is change over time, is there not? I mean, you can't deny that. I mean, they would, they would snap back at you like that. Well, of course I don't deny that. I don't know any human being who denies that. Of course <laughs> there's change over time, but that's not the issue here. Mm-hmm. Darwin said a lot more than that. He said... All living things are descended from a common ancestor by unguided natural processes, such as random mutation and survival of the fittest. That's Darwinism. That's the issue. And that's the problem. And so, in other words, not just can things tweak and make minor modifications, but can you, through this process, create new organs and new organisms? That's the issue. Darwin didn't write a book called how existing species change over time, because, again, that's not the issue. He wrote okay. a book called The Origin, Origin of, species. of Species. Right. Now, what would be one, because you're, you're famed, we'll get to your other new book, the exciting new book, uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism and Intelligent Design. Okay, but just out just about a month ago. We'll get to that a little bit later. But your other book, the book that, as it were, you know, catapulted you to um, notoriety across the world. In- infamy. Infamy in the mind of some people. Uh, icons of evolution. Don't you pick out what, about 10 of these pictures or charts in public textbooks? What's one of those icons that is, as it were, melting in the eyes of scientists and is kind of no longer 
a credible reason for believing in the big theory. Well, the icons, of course, are these textbook images that every biologist is raised on. In fact, most biologists don't know any more about evolution than these icons. Mm. Uh, Perhaps the most central icon is Darwin's Tree of Life, which supposedly shows all living things evolving from a common ancestor, which is at the base of the trunk. Uh, And the branches are modern species such as ourselves. Uh, But when you look at the fossil record or the molecular evidence, uh, things start unraveling very quickly. Mm. Uh, In the fossil record, the the most glaring uh, discrepancy is called the Cambrian explosion, Mm. in which the major groups of animals, what we call phyla, instead of emerging uh, as tips of branches along the way, appear uh, all at once. In the fossil record. And so the, the gradualistic uh, scenario is sort of uh, having troubles. because Serious it, troubles, okay, yes. The major kinds of forms don't, don't ooze in. They don't kind of phase in. They just kind of burst on the scene. That's correct. Well, then let me switch, if I could, to the other um, biology um, expert here, Michael Behe. Thanks again for coming down to Florida. I think we were saying last time you were braving a near hurricane. Was yeah, that true? Yeah, and driving across the Bay Bridge with uh, winds blowing and, and waves crashing. Well, we're, we're thankful we have good uh, weather. We have better weather, at least, th- yeah. this, this time than last. And, of course, the, now the weather is getting pretty blustery in this debate, is it not? Uh, it, yeah, the, the temperature has gone up considerably okay. in the last year or two. Well, if you could give us again just uh, we'll get into the whole theory or the idea of irreducible complexity and we'll have you break that down and explain it in kind of um, layman's terms in a minute but if you could just give us a scope out or an overview of how you see the debate changing in the last couple years between let's say 1985 when uh, that book evolution of theory and crisis was printed there was not much really questioning of darwinian theory and now there is is that right yes that's right now i think the standard paradigm darwinism has gone from trying to ignore the evidence against it to trying to deny it to getting angry uh, at people who point it out. And so we're in this phase, and I think uh, the next phase is supposed to be uh, the acceptance, you know, where everybody knew it all the time. Everyone knew it all along. Darwinism <laughs> couldn't explain this uh, in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What uh, What was the key point for you that really, as it were, woke it up? Was it Michael Denton's book? And, yes. and was there anything else? Uh, well, uh, that was uh, the big thing. I read Michael Denton's a theory, uh, Evolution of Theory and Crisis, and the startling thing to me at the time as an associate professor at Lehigh University, a professor of biochemistry, I thoroughly believed in Darwin's theory because that's what I was taught in school and I never heard anybody question it. And here I read this book by a geneticist who pointed out a number of problems for Darwin's theory and, and I was stunned because I had no answers for the objections he raised and uh, and never heard anybody else in my training raise these objections. And so I became convinced right away that I was being led to believe this theory less because of the evidence than because that's what we were supposed to believe. So you're saying it wasn't some religious experience, some mystical <laughs> <No>. <laughs> transport, no. that, but it was uh, just a kind of confrontation with evidence that uh, that brought you to this place. That's right. I, I thought there were answers in the science journals. And when I, after reading Denton, I I looked 
in the journals to, to find those answers, and they were not there. A thundering silence. Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to come back in just a few moments uh, after a quick uh, station update. And this is Tom Woodward. I've been uh, delighted here to talk with Jonathan Wells, Dr. Jonathan Wells, trained at the University of California, Berkeley, which is not exactly known as a haven of conservatism, I guess, and also with Michael Behe of uh, Lehigh University, author of Darwin's Black Box. This is Tom Woodward, and we'll be back with you in just a few moments on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk WTBN. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. Today, a special encore presentation of an episode originally airing September 30th, 2006, when Dr. Woodward had the privilege of hosting two of the preeminent figures in the intelligent design movement, Michael Behe and Jonathan Wells. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, the host of the program on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, WTBN. And we're here with two scientists. The uh, fellow on my immediate left is a cell and developmental biologist, or just plain biologist, Dr. Jonathan Wells, author of two very exciting books, Icons of Evolution, which has been widely discussed, and you might say, uh, should we say cussed and discussed? <laughs> it's uh, been, uh, as it were, a target of, um, of strong emotional opposition by many, many uh, leading Darwinists because they don't like to have the problematic evidence brought out. Would that be a fair statement? That's very fair. I, I have a response to their criticisms that I call the critics rave over icons of evolution. And the critics rave, an extended article, is one that I commend. I mean, I read it and I, I laughed. I didn't cry. <laughs> Maybe I cried over some of the travesty that is committed uh, in this area. But it's a fantastic, absolutely s- splendid and out- outstanding commendation to you for that wonderful, wonderful uh, response to your critics. Thank you. Critics Rave, available on the discovery.org website, I believe. That's correct. And you can just click on um, CSC, Center for Science and Culture, and then look up uh, Jonathan Wells. Uh, Jonathan has also written a new book. And could you tell us the name of that and how that came about? It's the Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism and Intelligent Design, and it was written mainly to, as an attempt to dispel some of the confusion that has arisen over these issues, uh, much of it promoted deliberately by Darwinists who have a stake in hmm. maintaining confusion so that people don't look too closely at the evidence for their theory. And how's the response been so far? Uh, about the same as it was for icons of evolution. Mm-hmm. In other <laughs> a lot, words, lot of, a lot of a lot of excitement on the gnashing scout, of teeth, gnashing and, uh, of teeth. <laughs> certain foot stompings noticed okay. in, in certain quarters. Yes. yes. Well, I was delighted when I picked up my copy. I went straight for. I made a beeline to my local bookstore, got a copy, and guess what? On page ten, I made it. I made the list of books you're not supposed to read, because the uh, the symbol of this uh, series of books, I guess, is the the pig. And yes, politically politically incorrect guy. P I G. You've arrived. I've arrived. The pig has has pegged me, and it's a little list on page ten, and it's really cute. It says, "Warning, warning, books you're not supposed to read. <laughs> Stay away. These are virus-inducing or something." And one of them is doubts about Darwin: a History of Intelligent Design, which of course was my study of this whole movement over here at USF, where we had our conference uh, Friday night. And uh, I might add, there's a wonderful new book, A Meaningful World, uh, mentioned here, uh, Weicker and Wit, and By Design or By Chance, by Denise O'Leary, a good friend of ours. 
Uh, she is a terrific uh, journalist and very, very accurate in her writings. But as you get into this whole you know, conflict, Dr. Wells, uh, as you get into the tension, where do you see glimmers of hope? Is there any glimmer of hope either um, in, in the evidence or the way people are framing this issue? Maybe I could say, can you predict where we might see hopeful changes in the future in this whole area? I see lots of hope, actually, and I discussed uh, much of that in the last chapter of my book, which is called Scientific Revolution, because uh, many of uh, the hallmarks of scientific revolutions of the past can be seen in the present controversy. Disputes over the definition of science, uh, sort of a circling of the wagons mentality on the part of the existing establishment, and most of all, and this is where the hope, I think, comes from, not just is the evidence piling up against Darwinism, and in my opinion, for intelligent design. But young people, the hope of the future, are increasingly skeptical of Darwinism and interested in intelligent design, and mm-hmm. the future belongs to them. I was just talking, uh, I think two or three days ago, with Stephen Meyer, uh, and our two scientists, uh, Michael Behe and Jonathan Wells, know Steve Meyer quite well. He's the director of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. And it was a, a really funny story. He said he went to a university campus recently, and some students uh, came up around him after his lecture. And, of course, the, the, the Darwinian uh, biologists were, you know, with clenched teeth sitting on the front row, shaking their heads, you know, very negative uh, body language. <laughs> and they, they stormed out, I guess. And the students came up and flocked around Steve Myers, and they said, you know, our professors hate you. They hate your guts. <laughs> they think what you're doing is terrible, but we all believe in what you're saying, and we think that you're making great headway. So they said, you know, hang in there, you know. And so I, when I heard that, I, I, had, I took hope because the younger generation is not locked into this mentality, this framework of thinking that the older generation is. So I think there is hope. Any comment? Well, you know, uh, the Darwinists right now are doing their best to censor all criticism of their theory. They mm. do not want critical analysis of evolution in the high school curricula, for which, example. Which seems very unscientific to me. Totally unscientific, but also, especially in our culture, it's the one strategy doomed to fail. Especially I mean, in America. To tell young people that you cannot think or talk about X mm-hmm. virtually guarantees that that's exactly what they're going to flock to, and that's mm-hmm. what's happening right now. Wow. Well, to Michael Behe, uh, Dr. Behe, what is your thought on the future? Do we have hope, or do we see you know, evidence coming in that gives encouragement to a fair critical analysis of Darwinism or this radical idea of design? Uh, well, I- I'm extraordinarily hopeful for the future simply because uh, the scientific uh, results coming in week after week in all major journals are pointing more and more and more towards towards design, away from some uh, theory of randomness, uh, which Darwinism is at root. It was easy to believe that Darwinism could explain life, you know, maybe 50, 80 years ago, mm-hmm. before people knew what was how life worked. But the more we've uh, learned about the cell, the more we have seen that it is not this little kind of piece of electrified jelly that earlier generations of scientists thought a blob of jello yeah it's it's this you know extraordinarily sophisticated and elegant uh, a factory automatic uh, automa- automated factory and uh, the sophistication and elegance and complexity is not getting any less 10 years ago I wrote a book called Darwin's black box in which I, I talked about this and in the 10 years since then, Nothing has gotten less complex than we knew back then. It's gotten increasingly more complex. And 
at bottom, this discussion, although there are attempts at steering it this way or that, it's going to be determined by the evidence, and Mm -hmm. the evidence is pointing straight towards design. So it's like nature is speaking. And, yeah. and ultimately, nature decides, not not either our side or their side. Nature That's, casts the deciding vote. Exactly. It's, it's hard to argue with nature. Yeah. <laughs> in my book, I, I talk about nature being recalcitrant. And that's, of course, I mean, a word in my book that some people may have had to, to look up. But I remember the first time I think heard of uh, someone being like recalcitrant as like a kid who, who wouldn't straighten out. Mm-hmm. You know, stubborn, I guess, is the best synonym. That sounds like me. Uh, <laughs> I was Keith Allen was recalcitrant. Uh, I admit it. <laughs> okay. That's what my mother said. So. But you're no longer recalcitrant. That's okay. right. Okay. You're, you're, you're <laughs> able to listen and respond. But, but nature doesn't <laughs> listen to the pontificatings of scientists. It just kind of keeps saying what it wants to say regardless. That's right. Nature doesn't care what your little ideas are. Exactly. And eventually it pounds on your head enough <laughs> and, and it gets through. <laughs> Maybe it produces some bumps along the way. <laughs> but, I, but I pointed out that when I visited some friends up in New Hampshire, uh, we had a, a visit to my friend John uh, Monty LaMontagne. He's a good friend. I knew him from the Air Force. We were both officers at Shaw Air Force Base. So I, I visited him. We, we get to see him up in New Hampshire. And they have this big rock that they, as they were clearing the rocks, you know, New Hampshire is known as the, the Granite State, I think. And so they were, and when they built their home, they were clearing the rocks and creating a nice about three-foot-tall rock fence around the back of their property. And then um, they found one rock that was seemed to be a little bit hard to dig out. So they kept digging and digging and digging. They wound up digging, I think, around eight or nine feet down. And the rock kept getting bigger. I mean, it was bulging. And then finally, they got to where it got narrow and narrow, I think, about 10 feet down. And so they couldn't move the rock. It was jutting out of the ground, I think, two, or two and a half, three feet. So what they did is they took a backhoe, and they just kind of pushed it after they had this gigantic crater, this big, deep crater. They just pushed the rock and tilted a little bit more, and then they just covered dirt around it. You see? Now, why, where am I going with this? That rock was recalcitrant. Okay. <laughs> it said, I dare you to pull me out and throw me on that little fence. I dare you. And so I, I think of nature as like this great big rock, but instead of just you know 10 feet tall, it's as big as the planet Earth. And it just says, I dare you to do anything with me except just accept me and, and learn to live with me in the way I am and, and the facts of what I am. Yeah. So I think of that, you know. It, well, it, biology is a lot more interesting than that rock. I'll yes, I'm that. sure. <laughs> yeah. A lot more Well, details, don't tell a geologist that. Don't oh, uh, be, be good careful. Point. Good point. Okay. <laughs> well, we have just a few moments left before break. I want uh, Michael Behe, could you outline in a nutshell, in about a minute and a half, what your theory of irreducible complexity? See, people may hear about this. What does that mean? It's, it, it's, yeah, it's a fancy phrase, but it's just a simple idea. It means that you've got some sort of machine or system that has a number of different parts to it, and all of the parts work together to do something interesting that the parts themselves couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a little hard to follow, but a, a good illustration of it from our everyday life is a mousetrap, a mechanical mousetrap usually has five, six pieces, a spring, uh, a wooden board, uh, a couple of pieces of metal, a hammer, and, and so on. And if you take one of those pieces away, generally the mousetrap doesn't work. Now, the interesting thing about this, number one, it's very hard to see how one can put together irreducibly complex systems gradually, especially in a random manner. And so things like that are challenges to Darwinian theory. And the second point is that Things like that, things like mousetraps, things that have a number of different parts that are needed to work, are all over the place in the cell at the very foundation of life. Mm-hmm. And 
And so uh, the very foundation of life, uh, the, the molecules of life, are, are big problems for, for Darwinian theory. So these uh, machines or motors or systems in the cell are horrendously complex, and there's not just one or two of them. You're saying the cell is jam-packed with them. That's right. It's just like you know an automated factory that makes cars or something like that, Wow, that degree of complexity. Well, I'm going to come back and revisit that and ask you to, in the next uh, segment to bring out a couple concrete examples so that our listening audience can hear about that and also want to revisit uh, Jonathan Wells and some of your work and what you're saying in this new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism and Intelligent Design. I'm Tom Woodward, and I'm the host of Darwin or Design. I'll be back with you in a moment. You're on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, WTBN. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. Today, a special encore presentation of an episode originally airing September 30th, 2006, when Dr. Woodward had the privilege of hosting two of the preeminent figures in the intelligent design movement, Michael Behe and Jonathan Wells. I'm Tom Woodward, back with you on Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk WTBN. I'm here with Keith Allen, our producer. Keith, what do you think of this program so You know far? what? I'm just captivated. Okay. You know, I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm captivated at our own uh, program as well, you know, because we have two first-rate blue-chip five-star professors of biology and biochemistry. Did I get it right that time? Jonathan Wells, professor of biology, specifically embryology, I think would be a fair statement. That's correct. Uh, more of a, a research biologist and writer than professor. Mike okay. is actually a professor okay. at this point. Okay. I, I, if I said professor, I, I'm speaking metaphorically. Mm-hmm. A lot yeah. of brain power here. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you're a professor to me. You're teaching me. And Michael Behe, author of Darwin's Black Box, and another book coming out in the spring. Can we reveal the name of the new book? Uh, yeah, it's going to be called The Edge of Evolution. Okay. It should be out next summertime. Next summertime, okay. And um, I think that's still in production phase and the final tweakings and, and, yeah, and reviewing. Yeah, it take, takes a while to get these things out. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll look for that next summer, The Edge of Evolution. I'm sure it will be a very helpful addition uh, in analysis of this whole question of ID versus the Darwinian hypothesis. Now, let's, uh, if we could revisit, uh, Mike, uh, your discussion, you were bringing out this uh, multi-part complexity. And, of course, in my lectures, I actually show pictures of of this little motor to illustrate that, this little funny, it's a rotary engine, is it, Uh, the flagellum? Tell us about the flagellum, why it captivates people, you know, maybe why it's become the mascot of the ID movement and of of your theory. I, I think uh, this uh, this thing called the bacteria flagellum, which is quite literally an outboard motor that bacteria use to swim, I think it's gotten to be uh, very well known in, in this discussion uh, simply because when people look at it, just look at illustrations of it, they immediately see what the problem is because this thing is is a motor just like an outboard motor on a on a speedboat or something. It's mm. it's got a you know many different parts. Parts that act like propellers, like clamps to clamp the motor on the boat. The the motor itself, which has a number of different parts. There's a drive shaft. There uh, are uh, things called bushings to allow the drive shaft to penetrate the bacterial membrane. And anybody who sees this quickly grasps that, you know, this looks like something that was built by NASA. Like something you would see at a Tampa Bay boat show. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Well said. Yeah. So they say – and – 
the way we recognize design is when we see a number of different parts that have been arranged for a purpose. And this simply screams design. Mm-hmm. And so it it quickly encapsulates uh, both the argument for design and the argument against a random gradual theory like Darwin's. It gets across the point in, in a nutshell. Okay, now uh, you have a one of your fans, and I'm speaking humorously, is, is a guy named uh, Kenneth Miller. Is that uh, correct? Yeah, Ken, Ken yeah, Miller. Yeah, yeah. you've uh, debated him, what, two or three times, maybe? Oh. Yeah, I think more than that, okay. half a dozen. Half a dozen or times. ten times, maybe over Are you years. on contract? Are you, the, you know, a roadshow contract? No. Okay, <laughs> just seems that way. But Ken Miller, a professor of biology at Brown University, wrote a book which I critiqued in my new book. Uh, I guess I could plug my new book. Can I do that, Keith? I think you can do it. Okay, thank you. It's your show. Yeah, I guess I can do that. I have a book coming out in just about three weeks. Uh, An official release date, November 1st, is what Baker has given. But about the end of October, it should appear in Barnes & Noble and Books A Million and all the other bookstores. It's called Darwin Strikes Back. Dun, 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 You can find a sound effect right now. Thank you. Uh, so I need to learn how to do the deep breathing of Darth Vader here. Uh, thank you, Keith. Uh, but uh, Darwin Strikes Back, uh, subtitled uh, Defending the Science of Intelligent Design, talks about this fellow. Ken Miller has written a book, Finding Darwin's God, where he defends theistic evolution. I believe he's a Roman Catholic. Of course, uh, Michael Behe, being of that same persuasion, is uh, in his interesting dialogue because he's presenting a way that you can join evolution and the Christian faith in this kind of symbiosis or combination. And Michael Behe, uh, not based on any religious reasons, but based on the science, came to doubt Darwinian evolution. Is that accurate? Uh, that's quite right. Okay, and then you have this dialogue. He says there's a way that the flagellum could have been evolved, but to me it seems a bit flimsy. I mean, it's almost, uh, sometimes I almost feel like snickering. I want to be respectful, but why don't you explain what his uh, big idea is and why it doesn't uh, fly with you? Well, it's this, and and I agree that I, I don't find it very persuasive, quite the opposite. It's this. Suppose that I said that, uh, gee, this old automobile here looks irreducibly complex because it's got tires and it's got a steering wheel and uh, and other parts that I can see from the outside. And if you take away those tires and steering wheel, it's, it's not going to work. You'd say, hmm. And then somebody came along and said, ah, oh, you said it was irreducibly complex. It needs all these parts to work. But look, if I raise the hood, there's a gas pump on the inside. I can take that gas pump out and maybe use it to pump some other liquid for some other purpose. Mm. Therefore, this car could have arisen by, by random changes and, and, and selection. Uh, so the argument is that because it's more complex than we first thought, then that somehow rescues the the problem of irreducible complexity. Now, explain what you mean more complex than we thought. Well, in the analogy, I'm saying that it, we didn't even know it had a uh, this gas pump in the first place. Okay. Oh, and a, then a, a subcomponent. That's right, a uh, subcomponent. Okay. Turns out that the bacterial flagellum that I spoke about uh, a minute ago, uh, that's this rotary motor, uh, has a part which in, can act also as something called a protein pump. Proteins are the components of the flagellum. Mm-hmm. And it needs this because unlike outboard motors in our everyday world, a flagellum has to assemble itself. There's a robot system in the cell mm-hmm. that assembles the flagellum, and, and this component uh, is part of it. And so 10 years ago, we did not appreciate the true and the whole complexity of, of this thing, and we have subsequently found it to be more complex. 
which Darwinists neither expected or or predicted. Mm -hmm. And in some odd twist of logic, uh, Ken Miller and and other Darwinists have pointed to this as somehow, you know, helping their their theory. And uh, I have uh, yet to understand exactly how they they, uh, intend to use this. But Mm -hmm. the long and the short of it is that nobody knows how a flagellum could be put together uh, nobody knows how this protein pump could be put together. Nobody knows how you could get from the protein pump to the flagellum in the first okay. place and or back again. And the protein pump has, what, 10 proteins? That it basically is made up of about 10 proteins? Yeah, something like that. Okay. And the flagellum has another dozen or, or 20. Some of the components seem to be the same for each, but a pump does not explain how you get an outboard motor, and right. an outboard motor doesn't explain how you have a pump. And uh, so they essentially they have little to do with each other, uh, except that this discovery raises the complexity of, of the system. Let me respond to that as a kind of a non-biologist. I mean, I, I guess I, I feel I've read enough biology to at least earn a bachelor's, <laughs> if not a master's. Maybe you can award the one sometime <laughs> in the future, but I'll go ahead and just feel good. I, I feel good. Okay, Keith, you feel good about uh, your biology knowledge? Are you getting there? I am, I'm, I'm taking notes, you're mental taking, notes right taking now. Notes. Yeah. Okay, you're, you'll give you a bachelor's here in the next uh, six months. Yeah, I'm right. lining up. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, I feel I know enough biology to ask some intelligent questions at least. And my question is this. Okay, given that the, the pump, this TTSS, I think, is the type 3 secretory system, system which uh, I will give everybody out in the listening audience a quiz on that next week. Uh-huh. Not, not really. But the TTSS, this pump, this 10-protein pump, which is at the core of the flagellum, the thing that acts like a little pump on its own or can, has only 10 parts. And the, let's say the, the flagellum has at least 30, if not 40 or more, depending on what type of flagellum. I mean, as just a kind of a plain-thinking, skeptical uh, guy, skeptical of the theory, I think, how could you get from... Well, from zero to ten mm-hmm. in the first place. I mean, they never talk about how you evolve this ten-part pump. So as just an ordinary skeptic of this theory of macroevolution and the evolution of the flagellum, uh, there are two questions. One is, of course, how did you get from zero to ten? But the other is, how did you move on? What's the theory by which the ten-part uh, pump, right, the pump that has about ten parts, how did it progress step by tiny step with some function all along and into this flagellum when you get to the 30 or 40 or 50 proteins. Isn't that a little bit hard to imagine? It's very hard, and it's much, much worse than this discussion makes it seem. Uh, But rhetorically, if if you look at the the aims of the Darwinists, like like Ken Miller, their purpose is to make you or make the audience think that these transitions would be easy. So they try to simplify things as much as possible, blur over differences and so on. And my job as is to show you how complex things are, how difficult they would be to and and rhetorically that's more difficult because mm-hmm. a lot of people have less patience uh, uh, with discussions of that type. But it's it's misleading even to think of you know number of parts where there's ten proteins in this and there's thirty in that because a protein itself is an enormously complex entity. Uh, just a single protein. Just one single protein, and you've got you know dozens of them in the finished flagellum. Mm. These things have to assemble themselves, which means they have to have surfaces that interact geometrically and and chemically and. Um, so uh, this simple-minded uh, talk uh, by uh, Darwinists about, oh, you just take this piece and, and add it to that, doesn't really address the question. It's also good to, to 
uh, remember what evolution is known to do. Mm-hmm. And one uh, one um, thing I'd like to point out is we know what evolution does in in response to things like uh, uh, malaria, where uh, it uh, leads to diseases like sickle cell disease, something called thalassemia, where genes are broken left and right. Uh, in our experience, in our experiments, uh, Darwinian evolution does not build anything. It, it breaks things. Very good. Well, the, uh, the whole the opportunity that we've had to hear from you two leading scientists who are at the very cutting edge of this debate, you know, Darwinian theory coming under critical fire from, from scientists, uh, not only in the U.S., I might add, all around the world. Isn't that true? This is becoming an international topic. Yes, it is. It's uh, the Darwinists like to portray it as a fun, uh, fundamentalist American phenomenon, but it's not. It's quite international. Yeah. So it's international now, and as we're going to find out in the next segment, it's going to be very exciting in the coming years as we learn more and more information on Darwin or design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. Thanks for joining us. We have more to come. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. Today, a special encore presentation of an episode originally airing September 30th, 2006, when Dr. Woodward had the privilege of hosting two of the preeminent figures in the intelligent design movement, Michael Behe and Jonathan Wells. We're back on Darwin or Design, and we might add that uh, a conference by that name called Darwin or Design Resolving the Conflict. Uh, was just uh, aired here in Tampa Bay at the Sun Dome at the uh, basketball arena, turned into Scientific Lecture Hall on Friday night and on Saturday morning at the Radisson on Roosevelt in North St. Pete. We were able to hear Michael Behe, a member of the biology faculty. He's a biochemist, teaches at Lehigh University, author of Darwin's Black Box, and Jonathan Wells, an embryologist, and we're going to talk about embryos in a moment, one of the areas that I studied. Did you know that, Jonathan, in high school? No, I didn't. I was convinced of Darwinism based on the embryology, uh, or embryological evidence, supposed evidence, of Heckel. And my dad, a, a graduate of Princeton, uh, as, as I was getting ready to leave for Princeton myself, said, this is the truth. And I said, oh, wow. So your book has special meaning to me. Uh, your book, Icons of Evolution, and of course we'll talk about your other book as well. But let me just mention that if you missed that conference, you can still get it. Keith? Yeah, no fear. No fear. The great presentations uh, were captured on video, including Q&A. We actually had some terrific, terrific discussions. So I think you'll enjoy seeing this video. Very worthwhile. You can get it through the PSSI, that's Physicians and Surgeons for Scientific Integrity. And the more memorizable of the two website um, entry points is Doctors Doubting Darwin. That's just run together like one really long word, doctorsdoubtingdarwin.org. And that's um, just leave a little message where it says uh, leave a message, and you just say, I want a copy. I want information on getting that uh, DVD set. Very, very affordable. So let me just uh, welcome back, as I was saying a moment ago, these two biologists, uh, the bio chemist Michael Behe, we had a chance to talk about irreducible complexity, and he was explaining his idea of the complexity of the systems in the cell defy a step-by-step Darwinian story. The Darwinian creation story seems to break down, right, Michael Behe? Yes, it it never gets started. (laughs) It never gets started. It's a Mm non-starter. And uh, the world is beginning to hear about this. How many copies of your book have, have sold, if I can be so nosy? 
Uh, somewhere north of 200,000, I wow. think. Wow. That is a tremendous you know, spreading of the information through Darwin's Black Box. And let me just say, if I can ever plug Michael Behe's book at any time in the last 10 years, now is for the time for me to mention it because it has a new chapter, an afterword called 10 Years Later. I think that's the name of it. Yes, that's right. That's okay. the Okay. Mm-hmm. And it is dynamite. I mean, this this afterward basically saying, now, how well is my theory doing 10 years later? Basically says, I think it's getting enormously stronger, not because Michael Behe is, you know, arguing for it, although he is presenting defense of it out in the, the big world there, but because the evidence from streaming in from studies is, is building. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah. Essentially, I declare victory. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, a few people are still squawking, but the, the evidence is is clearly there, and mm-hmm. I, I analyze the arguments from the other side, and, and uh, essentially they say, you know, eventually we'll discover the answer, and, mm-hmm. and if if you're at all skeptical of that, then you really have no reason to mm-hmm. to think Darwinism is is right. Yeah, I think Franklin Harold uh, is the biologist who wrote the way of a cell. The ways. Yes, that's right. Okay. The way of the cell. And then there's a wonderful quote where he says, even though I'm I'm refusing, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says I'm so I'm more or less refusing to go along with this non scientific idea of intelligent design. But we must admit that all we have are a, a set of wishful speculations. Yeah, that's right. He says there's he says we should reject intelligent design on principle. Okay. He never quite spells out what that principle what is. What principle is? Yeah. Uh, but he says we have to admit we we don't have evidence that uh, that Darwinism can do the trick of any of these biochemical systems. That's right. He says any biochemical system. Like zero out of the, the thousands. <laughs> zero has even yeah, a plausible explanation. I mean, that's a fairly poor... Uh, well, I would say there's a lot of faith there. Is it okay to use the word faith, you know, in describing the Darwinian well, par- paradigm? Sure. It's an assumption. They, uh, they ass- uh, the Darwinists simply assume that some unintelligent process had to have gotten the, mm-hmm. the job done. So Give us 50 years or 100 and, yeah. and we'll probably get around to... Yeah. And more money. <laughs> and more money. Please pump the money in from Congress, et cetera. Well, it's been great to have uh, Michael Behe with us. Now, Jonathan Wells, uh, who did much probing research into the embryology of vertebrates, frogs, et cetera, at the University of California, Berkeley, while you were getting your Ph.D., and you did research in this area. Tell us a little bit about your icon of embryos and why you believe this icon has melted in front of us. Sure. <clears throat> Uh, actually, uh, Darwin considered these embryos to be the strongest evidence for his theory mm. of common descent mm-hmm. uh, because he knew the fossils were a problem and he didn't know about the molecules. Uh, anyway, these drawings, uh, which uh, can be found in many biology textbooks, supposedly show that humans and uh, chickens and turtles and salamanders and so on all look almost identical in their early stages. And this is supposed to be evidence that they come from a common ancestor. In fact, Darwin thought the ancestor looked like the top line in those drawings, the, the, the early stages. It turns out that the man who drew them, German Darwinist Ernst Haeckel, faked the drawings. They were known to be faked when he did them in the 1860s. Wow. And yet they still appear in biology textbooks. In your case, they convinced you of Darwinian evolution, and that's why they're there. That's why, as I was in high school biology class. Mm-hmm. They're there to convince people of Darwinian evolution, but they're not true. In fact, uh, the embryos look very different at that stage, and that's not even the earliest stage. If you go back to the earliest stage, they look even more different. Mm-hmm. So the pattern is very much unlike what Darwin thought provided evidence for his theory. Now, von Baer is the, was the founder of this whole field of embryology in the 1800s? 
Well, he was a pioneer in pioneer, the field. Pioneer, uh, yes, and uh, uh, he the drawings are sometimes attributed to him or claimed to illustrate an idea he had. But he was an opponent of Darwin. He hmm. didn't think the embryos had evolved the way Darwin thought they did. So that's interesting. It's kind of a, a twisted. Uh, View of history to uh, bring von Baer into the picture as though he were some supporter of Darwinian theory. And is there um, in in the current moment you're you're saying in the 1990s and even to this day, public either high school or college textbooks have printed those same fraudulent uh, drawings. Both college and uh, high school. In fact, I have several books with copyright dates of 2004 that have these drawings in them. That's as incredible. How can they be so brazen? I mean, you would think that since your book came out in 1999, I mean, it's what, six and a half, seven years ago at the most, that they would um, that they would be embarrassed. They would tuck their tail and just say, oh, we're sorry, we're, we're, you know, yank them out next week. How can they be so uh, brazen? I mean, I'm, I'm shocked. Well, the response that I get from Darwinists frequently is, well, we know the theory's true, mm. and even though the drawings are sort of fudged, <laughs> Fudged <laughs> or doctored, or one one of them says improved. <laughs> uh, we know the principle is true, so it's okay to use these faked drawings. Well, unfortunately, you don't know the principle is true, the theory, unless mm-hmm. you have evidence to support it. This mm-hmm. was supposed to be evidence, but it's not true. Michael Behe, is it true that I think your wife uh, had a wake up call when she heard about this information? Yeah, she was uh, she was given this uh, information in Catholic uh, Catholic school, parochial school. Uh, we're we're Catholic, uh, given uh, by a, a brother, religious brother, teaching her biology class. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came in with a picture of Heckel's embryos, these embryos that all look alike, and showed it to his seventh grade class and and said something to the effect that evolution is true. Get used to it. Wow. So, you know, it's an effective, essentially, propaganda tool, but mm-hmm. it, it's not right. And when she discovered the, the icon was, was a, just a mere icon, uh-huh. what was her reaction? Well, she was, she was shocked, as, as you, mm-hmm. you might expect. You know, here's something you're, you're relying on this for your view of how the world works, and it's false. Mm-hmm. And, and it really shatters your, shatters your confidence. Now, one point of interest for Catholics here is that these same drawings have been used repeatedly to justify abortion, mm. because if a human embryo is just an evolved fish, mm. there's no reason not to kill it. Well, the theory of intelligent design, thank you for pointing that out, the theory of intelligent design is still very controversial, and we know that, and people will say, well, this is just religion. I mean, in my new book, Darwin Strikes Back, uh, I'm bringing out, as it were, this kind of mantra. They just, you know, the, the other side says it's just religion, not science. It's just religion, not science. Isn't it true that in science, Dr. Behe, Dr. Wells, that we can today identify patterns that are left by, if you will, an intelligent cause without knowing who the intelligence is? One of you want to take that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, uh, we apprehend intelligence, uh, as I said uh, a little while ago. When we see that parts have been arranged to perform some function, uh, the purposeful arrangement of parts. If you look in a dictionary, that's one of the definitions of, a, of design. Uh, and we see that in spades, uh, even at the, the very foundation of life, especially at the foundation of life and, and how these molecular machines interact. If I could add briefly, uh, you can go from design to a belief in God, but it requires further steps that involve theology, philosophy, right. uh, reading scripture, perhaps. Okay. So at, at the point of the bare detection of design, we're still very much in the empirical, uh, this is you know area what science can do. 
because science can't determine necessarily at all the identity of the designer, but then it defers that question to other fields. Yes, that's right. Okay. Well, it's been a tremendous opportunity to have in our studio Dr. Michael Behe, professor at Lehigh University, uh, author of Darwin's Black Box and the new book Edge of Evolution, and Dr. Jonathan Wells, embryologist, uh, fellow at Discovery Institute, and author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism and Intelligent Design and Icons of Evolution. Thank you both for coming, and this is Tom Woodward. I'm delighted to have uh, Trinity College's support in putting on this program, Darwin or Design. As we try to do in this conference, we'll try weekly to resolve the conflict and bring light rather than heat. Thank you for listening today to Darwin or Design as we've shared an encore presentation of a conversation that took place September 30th, 2006 between Dr. Tom Woodward and two of the intelligent design movement's preeminent figures, Dr. Michael Behe and Dr. Jonathan Wells. Just an amazing example of the great content you'll experience every week when you listen to Darwin or Design as Dr. Woodward keeps you up to date on the latest developments in the intelligent design movement, the latest controversy involving neo-Darwinism and always bringing it back to the place where science and faith meet at the foot of the cross. Darwin or Design is brought to you each week through the support of the C.S. Lewis Society. If you'd like to know more about the C.S. Lewis Society, if you have questions about intelligent design, you're welcome to log on to apologetics.org. And be sure to join us every Saturday at 5 p.m. for Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910 WTBN.